we ride back over to where we saw the pack go and and Ken, and Kent's like get behind this tree here and we'll wait till we come by they come by again and then we'll jump on the back so there we are like hiding behind this tree and we wait for them to come by again and we jump out and we race on and we you know sprint onto the back of the field and and meanwhile they're still racing all out like trying to catch us and and so we we get onto the back and our teammates turn around and they're like what are you guys doing here? We thought you were off the front. <laughs> and, uh, we're like, yeah, about that. Uh, we'll, we'll tell you later. Episode 71, Long Distance Cycling with Ian Dilly. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Welcome back to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is Travis. With me today is Ian Dilley. Ian is a journalist and author based in Austin, Texas. He's a former professional cyclist and has been a contributing writer for Bicycling Magazine since 2007. He has also written for print and online publications such as Outside Magazine, Men's Journal, Texas Monthly, and Slate. His new book, The Cyclist Bucket List, chronicles 75 must-do rides, races, and events from all around the world. Ian, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to have you. So do me a favor. Let's start out by telling our listeners more about yourself and how you got started in cycling yourself. Um, yeah, so I grew up in a cycling family. I guess I'm a third-generation cyclist. Uh, my great-uncle was a cyclist, and he passed the sport as well as a lot of used uh, Campagnolo cycling parts on to my dad and uh, my dad, you know, fell in love with cycling and passed it on to my brother and I. And um, so, yeah, I really grew up around it. My dad was the president of the uh, Greater Dallas Bicyclists in the Dallas area, uh, where we moved when I was about 10 years old. And, um, yeah, I've just always been a part of it since uh, since a really young age and, um, you know, lucky enough to make a career out of it at this point. Yeah. So you're in Austin now. Have you always been down there? I moved down here for college in 98, and uh, like a lot of University of Texas grads, sort of stuck around. Uh, I lived in the D.C. area for a few years when I was um, pursuing professional cycling. Uh, and then uh, uh, after that didn't uh, work out, I, I ended up moving back to Austin and starting my career and uh, building a family here. So I've been here. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, off and on since 1998. So tell me about professional cycling and the pursuit of it. You said it didn't work out, but that's, I mean, you're still putting in a lot of time and effort to, to try and get there. Um, well, I'm definitely not trying to be a professional cyclist now, you know, 35 years old and, uh, have, have different, you know, priorities in life. Um, but uh, definitely uh, when I was in college and after college, that was uh, my number one goal. Uh, you know, I sort of, I, I like majored in professional cycling at the University of Texas and uh, had a minor in journalism. Um, and I was on the U.S. national team, the under-23 national team, and, um, you know, raced full-time at the national level for a couple years after college and had some pretty decent results and uh, actually turned professional for a year with the Sierra Nevada Kodak Gallery cycling team. Um, Then unfortunately that same year that I turned professional, I had a knee injury that I wasn't able to fully recover from. And um, that was, that was sort of what led me to pursue journalism and writing uh, over cycling full time. Um, And then, you know, now I have a really nice balance between, racing at a high level, uh, as an amateur, I'm a cat one cyclist. Uh, my friends and I have a, you know, amateur cycling team that we run together called super squadra here in Austin. And, uh, and, and yeah, my full time, my day job is as a 
as a writer. Well, that's not a bad life. So what is a Cat 1 cyclist? So Cat 1 is the highest amateur level of the sport. Um, when you start out as a bike racer, when you buy a license from USA Cycling, which is the governing body of bike racing in the U.S., you start out as a Cat 5, and you accrue points through race results, and um, the highest amateur level is a Cat 1. And then... Uh, um, if you're a good enough Cat 1, you'll get picked up by a professional team, and, and that's at the, the point at which you become a professional. So, uh, yeah, right now I'm a, a Cat 1 with uh, just trying to hold on to my Cat 1, no, no intention of, uh, of moving to the professional level at all. <laughs> so how do you lose your, your Cat 1 status? You know, it's funny. You really can't. Uh, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> My uh, my brother is a Cat 1, and he hasn't raced seriously in a number of years. Um, but, you know, uh, he still maintains his Cat 1 status. And, um, you know, that's really... Once you make it to, like, the Cat 1 level, it's less about um, your fitness and more about your experience and your ability to um, handle your bike at really high speeds and close quarters. Um so, um, yeah, you can, uh, you can certainly downgrade and that's something that like the individual rider has to, you know, you have to write a letter to the governing body and ask to be downgraded once you've reached the cat one level. And, uh, I've had a few friends that have done that, you know, they're, they reach cat one when they had a lot of time to train and pursue cycling at a high level and they, uh, they didn't have as much time to train as much as they need to be competitive as Cat 1s, so they downgrade to Cat 2s or Cat 3s. Okay, so you, the reason you would want to downgrade is if you didn't want to compete at the Cat 1 level and you're, you just you would still want to compete, but you're not, you would have to compete at Cat 1 level if you're a Cat 1 rider. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. The, uh, the Cat 1 level is uh, really an interesting mix of racers. You, know, you sort of have like former pros like myself, um, and you also have young guys, um, you know, like I was when I was in my 20s, early 20s, um, that are really sort of, you know, quote-unquote, chasing the dream and trying to reach the next level. So it's uh, it, it's a sort of a interesting mix of people with different aspirations and uh, ambitions in the sport. That's cool. Well, that's a good little insight into that world. It's not something I was aware of. So why would you encourage people to get into cycling? Uh, why wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, uh, you know, the people that I see come to cycling and the people that, um, take up cycling at, at you know, seriously at, uh, you know, maybe at a uh, later age, I mean, in my eyes, it's really just the perfect sport. Um, you know, I, the way, what I view it as and what I've come to view it as is, uh, you know, the bicycle is a vehicle. And this is a vehicle that can do just a number of really incredible things. You know, it can get you to work and back. Um, you know, it can take you on really long rides with your friends out in the countryside. You know, it can take you up huge mountains and down the other side. Um, you know, it, it keeps you physically fit. It, it, uh, it's proven to, uh, give you a better, um, Mental state, I mean, uh, whether cycling is your primary sport or just something that you do, and, and and that's something I reinforce a lot, is like, just, you don't need to define yourself as a quote-unquote cyclist just because you ride a bike. Um, you know, it's it's just a, a really cool vehicle and uh, something that's, that's really fun to do, and, uh, you know, most of us know how to ride a bike, so it's... It's not hard to get into at all. Yeah, easy to start up and uh, and uh, easy to maintain for sure. Yeah, I think you you bring up the aspect of you know of maybe mental health. I don't think you said it, but the idea of being out there and having time to uh, to just be in your own mind and uh, and think things through and just have time on the road uh, or on the on the trails to yourself is uh, is enough a benefit just to start. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I guess it's one of the, I, I guess it's one of the things I love about cycling, but 
Uh, it can also be a detriment to other parts of your life, like your uh, family life or your social life. Um, you know, cycling is very time consuming. Um, and it doesn't have to be, you know, there's a lot of times I just get out for like a 30 or 45 minute ride. Um, but yeah, you can do it all day. You know, you can do, you know, five, six, seven hour rides or more, um, ride from sunup to sundown or longer. So, um, so yeah, there's certainly a meditative quality to it that, um, you get in a lot of endurance sports, uh, absolutely. But, um, there's, I don't know, to me, there's something special about a bicycle where, um, you know, it allows you, to, <laughs> well, I guess that maybe this is the special thing, you know, there's no other endurance sport where you can coast. So, um, you know, on a bicycle, you can really go as slow or fast as you want. And, um, yeah, that's just the, one of the great things about it. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. You can, uh, you can kick butt the entire time or you can take breaks, you know, and it's not like running where, you know, to take a break, you kind of need to stop and no runner really wants to stop in the middle of the, the routine, but right. you get a chance to, to lay off. So does it become an addiction? Yeah. I, I mean, I think all these, uh, adventure sports or endurance sports or whatever become an addiction. Um, but so, you know, this is very anecdotal, but someone was telling me the other day that, uh, once you become hooked on endorphins, you know, the, the chemical, uh, basically what goes through your body, the chemical that goes through your body when you're exercising, uh, it's, it's harder to quit endorphins than it is to quit heroin. I mean, um, and I mean, for me myself, like being an admitted addict with a serious problem, uh, something that I have to be very conscious of is, uh, you know, not not uh, not putting uh, riding my bike in front of uh, sort of uh, more important uh, things in my life, like uh, my family or my career. Yeah, I can completely relate. So you said you were pretty much raised or born into a cycling family. Was there a moment, something that happened, or a particular ride that that really clicked it for you? That made you think this is this is a cool thing, and I want to continue to do this throughout my life. Yeah, you know, it's funny because um, you know I was the uh, the youngest in my family. I have three other siblings, and uh, <clears throat> my brother was a very serious cyclist and raced as a junior. And you know, our family road trips were always about you know going to junior nationals, um, you know, the national championships with him over the summer. And, um, you know, I always rode bikes and I did some mountain bike racing, like in middle school and high school. Um, but it was never really my identity or, or my primary pursuit. I, I ran cross country in high school and, uh, I didn't really get into bike racing or even like bike riding at a serious level until I got to college. Um, I went to the University of Texas and joined the collegiate cycling team. Um, you know, my brother had been a national champion on the collegiate cycling team uh, at the University of Texas. And um, that was really sort of the moment for me where I became um, fully consumed by the sport. And um, I don't know if, I mean, anybody that's competed in collegiate athletics, um, there's just a really strong culture and a really unique culture around it. And, you know, bicycling is a club sport. It's not an NCAA sport, but it really gave me, uh, like, a community and a, a group of people um, that I connected with. And, um, and there was, yeah, no better place uh, you know, then on a bicycle to really form bonds and friendships. So, um, that was sort of where it all started for me was through collegiate cycling and, um, you know, going to nationals every year was always a big deal. And, um, I never won a national championship, uh, for the University of Texas, but I was on the podium a couple of times and, you know, I was a collegiate all American. So that was, yeah, that was, that was really what hooked me was, uh, was racing at the collegiate level and, and being involved in the sport through, uh, through, through school. 
Yeah, I imagine just simply being involved with a, a team, uh, teamwork and teammates and and finding or, or experiencing those achievements throughout has got to be what, what grabs you for sure. Yeah, I mean, it was that and it was definitely, I mean, t- to be honest, like uh, our team, when I was on it, it was a sort of embarrassment uh, to the era that my brother was on it. You know, they had probably like, four or five really talented, uh, you know, top level racers. And when I was on the team, uh, I was sort of the only, you know, really fast guy, but, um, it, it was also sort of showed me that the sport was more about just being fast and that it was about those adventures and, you know, the road trips to races and, you know, eating burritos, uh, after long rides. And, you know, um, a lot of it was like the camaraderie and just, you know, all the goofing off and stuff that we did, um, that became a part of the sport in addition to, um, you know, the actual races and, and the competing. Yeah, absolutely. So did your brother give you crap for, uh, for not being as good as his team was? (laughs) Uh, you know, he never really did. He was, uh, he was always super supportive. Um, uh, you know, I mean, I, uh, I, man, he's going to hear this and it's going to be horrible, but I sort of owe him everything. Cause, uh, you know, he was the one that would, you know, when I first got my first road bike, he would drag me out on these, you know, 80 mile rides way outside of Austin. And, um, And, you know, when I was sort of racing on my own, he was the one that I would call if I was feeling sort of down or needed some advice. And, uh, I, uh, that first year that I was racing, I had a lot of fitness from, uh, having run cross country, but I didn't have a lot of handling skills. So I probably crashed every other week. And at one point I, uh, I was in a race with him and we, we, uh, we had, I had flatted and he had dropped back to help me get back to the group. And when we were chasing back on, I touched, we touched wheels and I, uh, I lost control and flew into a barbed wire fence. And, uh, yeah. And I, I really, I was, uh, he described it as, um, like people that wear those Velcro suits and they run and jump at the Velcro wall. Like that's how he described watching me like fly road into a barbed wire fence is like I just stuck and was then tangled up in the fence and they had to like peel me out and I mean literally the barbed wires the spikes were you know fully embedded in my skin and uh so he had to like peel me out of the barbed wire fence and you know our race was over and he had to like drive me to the hospital so I could get stitched up and so um you know like we were three years apart and um he really like he had matured a lot faster than I did in high school. So, um, he was always like much more physically dominant than I was. And, uh, we didn't really come become close friends until, uh, until college or at least until he moved off to college. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's something that we really bonded over also. It was like cycling and, and racing together. And, uh, yeah. And he, um, he, he really helped me out a lot and, uh, introduced me to the sport and, and taught me a lot early on. That's, that's cool. That's not horrible at all. I imagine he'll uh, he'll feel good about hearing that that story. Yeah. Siblings need that together for yeah, sure. I know, I know. It's the stuff that you would never really say to your brother's face, but uh, it's 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 true. It's yeah, I, I I owe him a lot. He was he was definitely important. Uh, um, Jimmy. Oh, good. I'm glad you said it. Make him hear it now. <laughs> So cost of bicycles, I have to bring that up. You know, it used to be we would, uh, you know, you'd go out and buy a half decent bike and be four or 500 bucks, you know, and be a, a fairly decent bike. But now they're just insanely expensive. I mean, if somebody were to want to get into, uh, cycling at this kind of level, I mean, it's fairly cost prohibitive, it seems. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, you know, that's a fair point, um, I mean, you can get, it depends what kind of bike you get, you know, you can get a a sort of a low-end road bike for around a thousand bucks and probably a low-end mountain bike for like six or eight hundred bucks, you know, which is, 
Uh, yeah, it's far more than the cost of a, a pair of running shoes, absolutely. Um, but, uh, you know, there's ways into the sport, and, um, you know, I think a lot of it is... Um, I, I think the biggest hurdle is not necessarily price, but just um, education, you know, because there are places where you can get, like, a used bike uh, at a really discounted price or, you know, um, like where I live in Austin, there's a community bike shop called Yellow Bike where you can basically go build up a bicycle for free. You know, they have a lot of donated bikes um, and you you donate, you know, volunteer hours working around the bike shop and uh, you can build up your own bike for free. Um, but that, that requires a lot of time and also just... Um, the knowledge of knowing what kind of bike you need, um, knowing how to work on bikes, how to maintain them, um, things like that. Um, so I think there are ways into the sport at an affordable level. And I think, um, there are people out there. If you get connected with the right people that will help you get into the sport in an affordable way. Um, especially for kids. Uh, there's a lot of, um, teams and organizations that work really hard to provide um, bikes either free or uh, affordably for young cyclists. So it's something that the cycling community is conscious of. And, and, you know, there's definitely the 10,000 plus dollar bikes out there, but um, it's not all about that. You know, it's not all about the the bling stuff. It's more about just uh, getting on two wheels and uh, going on an adventure. Yeah, and I figure if you factor in your healthcare deductibles into that equation, it gets pretty cheap pretty quickly. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Assuming you don't wreck it. <laughs> I mean, that's true. Like, uh, I, uh, yeah, when I when I when I spend money on bikes, that's uh, you know, uh, I like to write it off as a uh, you know, at least in my mind, as uh, you know, this is this is saving me money on uh, long term healthcare needs. So. Oh yeah, absolutely is. Let's talk car racks, specifically Yakima and Thule. Chances are, if you're listening to our show, you either have one, want one, or you're going to need a car rack soon. Car racks, whether on the roof or on the back, need a good set of locks to keep your gear locked down to the rack and to your car. Good news. Our new sponsor, Z-Lock, has new lock sets for all Thule and Yakima racks at about one-third less than anywhere else. These lock cores are sourced from the original manufacturer and include bonus keys. Need replacement keys or cores matched to your current lock code? Z-Lock has replacement options even if you've lost all of your keys and don't know your key number. Check this out. Z-Lock is offering Adventure Sports Podcast listeners an additional 20% off their already low prices plus free shipping. Just enter the code ADVENTURE at checkout and you'll save up to 50% off a retail. Go to zlock.com forward slash adventure. That's Z-E-L-O-C-K dot com forward slash adventure and save. Come celebrate with us August 10th through 16th as more than 100 youth from over 12 countries from around the globe travel to the Vail Valley for the 14th annual World Youth Fly Fishing Championships. We are proud to host this Olympic-style event and to showcase the Colorado free-flowing rivers and scenic beauty for all the global competitors. You can help by volunteering to be a part of the event. For more information, go to wwwwyffc 2015 or just search for World Youth Fly Fishing Championship 2015. We hope to see you there. I like it that you bring up the yellow bike type places because that's a, I mean, that's a good tip for people to that maybe not be able to afford a $1,000, $2,000 bike to go in and put some of that together. And I imagine in this community like motorcycling, there are forums dedicated to, you know, what's good, what's not good, what are are good components and things to put together from older bikes to make a decent bike. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a whole, um, you know, sort of cult of people. And I, I, you know, I, I've gotten into that and I've, I've become affiliated, uh, with that, that, uh, you know, figuring out what old parts work with what and, um, reconditioning bicycles and, uh, 
yeah, when you get into that end of it, it's a lot of fun, and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of cool stuff out there that you can do, and um, you know, and I think uh, like the uh, the urban cycling scene and the fixed gear cycling scene that you see a lot of young people getting into, I think uh, part of the reason for that is uh, it's it's affordable. You know, you can buy it. It's it's a lot less expensive to have a single speed bike than a bike with, uh, you know, full derailers and gears and all that on it. So, um, so, uh, you know, <clears throat> at least for younger people, that's, uh, that's a good area to sort of, uh, get in the sport and, and meet a community. And, and, uh, and, and a lot of this knowledge is sort of handed down from person to person. And, uh, um, I mean, I feel like the community is really open and people, really enjoy sharing their passion for the sport and their knowledge of the sport with, uh, people who are, uh, more or less uninitiated. Right. You mentioned the, the single speeds. I've seen those around quite a bit. seems to be a growing trend. Is that simply just for raw commuting ability or is there something else that's driving that trend? Um, you know, that grows out of the bike messenger culture. Um, which is a little bit ironic because, uh, you know, in the digital information age, bike messengers are, you know, sort of becoming uh, less prevalent. But, uh, but it's it, you know, the, the fixed gear scene and a fixed gear is a bicycle that um, doesn't have a freewheel. So the, the cranks just keep spinning at the rate that the hub is spinning. And... Um, and, and it also comes from uh, track cycling, you know, which is sort of the banked tracks, which are called velodromes, um, that you see people racing on. Um, and that all comes from that side of the sport. And um, I don't know if it's as trendy as it was, you know, maybe five years ago. Uh, but it's... Uh, I, mean, I don't know. any Anything that's, you know deemed cool and contributes to people getting into the sport is, is a good thing. So, um, so yeah, I mean, the, the basis of it is that these are just sort of low cost, um, bikes that a lot of them are like old track frames, um, or, or old road frames that you can outfit a single speed or fixed gears. And, uh, and yeah, there's a, you know, sort of a community of people that ride these and enjoy riding them through town. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I've seen a lot of people in urban areas like Austin and Houston and, you know, DC, Chicago, wherever that have, uh, you know, formed a community around this type of riding and, and really helped get, uh, get people into the sport. Okay. Well, hopefully they're at least putting brakes on them. Yeah, you know, some cities have, like, uh, instituted a law that you have to have a brake on your bicycle. <laughs> um, and uh, and I, I think at least, like, people I know who were hardcore, you know, fixed-year riders, have, a lot of them have moved away from that. It's, it's not really great on your joints um, if you're riding them around town. You know, it's not the safest thing, so... Um, I think it has moved a bit more from like the fixed gear, no brake thing to um, just sort of low cost single speeds with a free hub and, and brakes. But, um, but I don't know. I'm sure there's some people out there that would, uh, uh, you know, take offense to what I'm saying here and, you know, diehard fixed gear fanatics. But um, yeah, uh, I, I'm a fan of brakes in uh, pretty much all scenarios. Well, yeah, I just ask for my own safe being. You know, if I'm in an intersection, I see some single-gear bike coming at me. If it's something off of a velodrome, it's not going to have brakes. So I want to make sure it's going to stop or at least get through before I pull out. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All right. Well, I want to talk about your new book. uh, But before we do, um, I, you know, in riding motorcycles, I'm out on the roads with you guys a lot. And I think we experience the same situations with drivers pulling out and uh, careless drivers and texting drivers. Um, do you have a story about something that just went awry on a ride or a race that you could share with us? Um, you know, as far as drivers, you know, knock on wood, um, I'm lucky enough that I've never really had any serious incidents. Um, you know, I think like anybody 
that operates any kind of vehicle on the road. I've had, you know, some altercations and, uh, and some exchanges of words and, you know, bicycles don't have horns. So, uh, you know, you, you might express your frustration in a different way, but, uh, <laughs> sign language, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I. I mean, I really count my blessings that I've never uh, been hit by a car um, or, uh, or or had a serious altercation like a road rage incident where, you know, a, a car pulled over or a car tried to strike me or, or the group I was in. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I think a lot of that also just comes down to operating your bicycle like a vehicle on the road, you know, um, Following the laws, you know, stopping at stop sites, stopping, uh, stopping at stoplights, stopping at stop signs, um, you know, uh, riding in their appropriate place on the road. Like if uh, if uh, if a roadway doesn't have a bicycle lane, then um, you know, riding far enough out from the curb that um, you you know you're uh, you're a clear presence to a vehicle. You know, uh, generally the best place to ride is sort of um, where the right car tri- tire track uh, would be, so um, so that the car has to slow down to pass you safely and uh, doesn't sort of buzz you as you're riding in the gutter of the road, um, and just you know being cl- uh, indicating clearly like uh, where you're going and 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 what your intention is on your bicycle, you know, if you're turning or um, and, and maintaining a straight line, so. I mean, the biggest thing I find, and this is really sad, is like when even like family members of mine who don't ride regularly get out on the road with them, and it's almost like motorists can sense that they're, um, you know, uh, inexperienced cyclists, and immediately, you know, they're on their horn, honking at them, "What are you doing? Get out of the way!" Um, but I think if you're uh, showing that you're a confident. Um, you know, trustworthy operator of uh, this vehicle, the bicycle, then you know, I find that motorists are uh, generally um, willing to, um, I guess, um, you know, adjust their own travel pattern or, or whatever to, uh, to, to get around you. So, um, yeah, um, I, don't, I don't know what your experience has been like on a motorcycle, but uh, I just feel like, um, you know, I'm a driver too, and I'm a pedestrian, and we're all just uh, people that are using vehicles on uh, these roadways where we share space, and it's up to all of us to, um, you know, operate them to the best of our abilities. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it comes down to respect. You know, people don't want to be disrespected. You know, a lot of people have a hard time with that. And if they feel like somebody's getting something over on them, um, it, it, it seems to trip them off pretty quickly. You know, so if you have a pack of riders riding four or five wide in, in a road, you know, the riders might be thinking, well, this is a safe thing to do because, like you said, it, it forces people to kind of slow down and notice you instead of a single single file on the side of the road and get clipped by a, a mirror or something. You know, but unfortunately, a driver can take that as, well, you're you're hogging, you're infringing on my rights, and now now you've set me off. And you see that all, all the time with motorcycles and bicycles. Um, but I think the way you're going about it and the way you, you describe it is is right. You just – it's about – you know, running with the rules of the road uh, and respecting the laws and, and other people. And I think we can all get along in this world, I hope, you know? Yeah, definitely. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I think there's a, also, like, a shift uh, that I see a lot in Austin where, um, you know, or, or in, play, in Austin and in places like Austin, um, you know, urban areas where, the, uh, you know, as cyclists, I think, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, you always sort of felt like you were this rogue road user and, you know, um, nobody was looking for bicycles and nobody cared about bicycles. So you sort of had the right, to, uh, you know, operate the bicycle however you wanted and cut through cars and, and run stoplights and, um, 
And I feel like with cities really working to um, incorporate bicycles into their transportation um, infrastructure and, you know, there is uh, a bicycle is sort of an in-between vehicle. You know, it's not, it doesn't have a motor, um, but it's not a pedestrian either. So it really does sort of need its own infrastructure and sort of own rules on the road and, and, and the way it's operated. So as, uh, as cities really work to incorporate infrastructure and traffic planning for bicycles, I feel like, um, there's a responsibility among cyclists to, um, really respect those rules and, uh, and, and operate, you know, their, their bicycles more, more responsibly. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So on to your book, the book is called cyclists bucket list. It chronicles 75 must do rides. Take plenty of time. Tell me all about it. I've been looking through the book. Um, there's, uh, there are some fantastic rides in here. The photography is great. So tell me all about, uh, how this book came about. Um, yeah, so, uh, this, the, the idea for this book was actually brought to me by the publisher Rodale, uh, which publishes Bicycling Magazine and Runner's World and Men's Health. And, um, you know, I, like I said, uh, or like you said in the introduction, I've been a contributing writer for Bicycling Magazine since 2007. And I've had the fortune to go on a lot of unique and interesting trips while reporting stories for the magazine. Uh, you know, experience a lot of interesting places. And uh, also during my time as a, you know, pursuing professional cycling and as a professional cyclist, I got to go see a lot of unique and cool places and, um, you know, uh, experience a lot of cycling venues and and places that were really entrenched in the culture of the sport. So uh, when they brought this idea to me, I, uh, I really took to it and uh, uh, maybe more even than they had anticipated. I really wanted this list and, and this ride, you know, the rides in this book to stand out as, um, you know, sort of like in the canon of, of cycling. Uh, and, you know, so everything in this book is, you know, entrenched in the sport in some way, you know, it either has a deep history as a race, uh, you know, something that's a part of the Tour de France or, you know, a, a classic pro cycling race in, in Belgium or France. Um, but there's also, you know, places that are, and rides that are, you know, really, uh, entrenched tours like, uh, the Transamerica bicycle route, you know, which, uh, you know, transverses the entire country and, um, and, and it's not just rides. Um, you know, there's things that you can appreciate like as a spectator, um, you know, the bicycle film festival is part of this book, you know, going to a film festival that's entirely about bicycle movies and, um, and, uh, you know, there's a bike shop in here that is, uh, also serves as a museum, uh, for bicycling and the owner of this bicycle shop is, uh, has this really carefully curated, uh, bicycle museum that sort of chronicles the lineage of the bicycle from, you know, the 1800s onward, um, with all these, these historic bikes. So, um, it, it's really widespread in terms of the parts of the sport that it covers. You know, it's, uh, not just mountain biking or road biking. It, it really covers everything. And, um, I really want to make it geographically diverse. Also, I obviously try to include something in every continent. Um, but, uh, hopefully wherever you live, um, there's something close to you that you can go experience, uh, without, uh, a, a huge amount of, uh, logistical, uh, <clears throat> problems. Right. So have you been able to ride each and every one of these rides or are some based on personal experience and others based off of research? So that is everybody's first question. And, uh, that was, uh, also my first question when they uh, brought this book idea to me, I was like, Oh, okay. So, um, uh, I guess I'm going to go do these rides. And, uh, this, this book is like, you know, a 10, 20 year project. Uh, 
<laughs> or a whirlwind tour yeah. in five months. <laughs> but uh, but no, I mean certainly uh, you know this is essentially my own bucket list, and um, you know I I uh, I like to trumpet myself as an expert on the sport, but uh, there are certainly a number of people. Uh, that are more adventurous and have uh, far more expertise than myself. And I really relied on those people to um, recommend places to me and really uh, tell me about the place and describe the place uh, in detail through their eyes. So um, so, so uh, a number of these places I, I had the fortune to experience myself and, uh, and ride, but, um, you know, a certain, you know, the majority of them are things that were uh, recommended to me and then, um, you know, really just dove into the research in terms of using everything at my disposal from maps to, you know, um, imagery online to, you know, uh, everything, you know, it's, it's pretty incredible what you can do with like YouTube and Google Maps this place these days. You can really see uh, or, and see through the eyes of other people um, their experiences in, in a certain place. And um, and then also just talking with people on the phone and emailing and, and getting their stories of what it was like to, to visit these places and, and ride their bike in them. Yeah, and imagine a lot of uh, you know people that write up trip reports on their own trip. I mean, they're usually pretty good about going into detail about every aspect of that trip. I find found that in the motorcycling community. I'm sure you see that in this community as well. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. I mean, um, blogs. I mean, it's incredible. <laughs> like, I uh, it's the amount. It's it's uh, pretty wild. Like the amount of uh, world travelers that I have bookmarked under my cyclist bucket list. <laughs> right. it's like and, and 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 i have friends that are you know close friends that recommended a number of the spots in this book um that that were one of those bloggers you know um that traveled around the world and chronicled all their experiences and um and yeah it's uh it i mean yeah i guess it's the information age just being able to sort of um experience uh the world through someone else's eyes and um and yeah, I mean, that was my intent for this book was, uh, sort of a, a tour around the world on your bike, you know, um, from, from your, uh, from your recliner. Yeah. And it really is that, I mean, the cool thing about it is it's not just a book for the addicted cyclist. Uh, I'm looking through the thing thinking, man, this is my bucket list. You know, I, I, I fear I talk about motorcycles too much and I try not to, but here I am. This is my passion. And I'm looking at all these, these places around the world thinking, yeah, hell yeah, I want to get there on my motorcycle. You know, these are uh, some phenomenal routes. I was looking at, you know, the, the Stelvio Pass. A lot of us know about that. Um, the St. Goddard Pass. I didn't know about that. The Cobblestone Pass in Italy. Um, how cool is that? That's, you know, what a phenomenal place to, to ride any kind of two wheel vehicle even a car, you know, but to make a bucket list, uh, that more people can do than just cycling. Uh, I'm, I'm loving the book. Yeah. I mean, uh, like I said, you know, the bicycle is my vehicle and that's sort of the prism through which I view the world. But, uh, I, I mean, absolutely like almost anything or a number of the things on this list, um, uh, like any vehicle, you know, bicycle, motorcycle, car, hiking. Um, there are a lot of ways to experience these places, uh, you know, not just on a bicycle. This summer, introduce your kids to the power of authentic outdoor adventure. Serving school-age kids from pre-K to the 12th grade, Avid for Adventure attendees climb, paddle, bike, hike, and thrive in the outdoors. Avid for Adventure offers authentic adventure camps different from other outdoor camps. Their highly skilled and educated staff, unique adventure activities such as rock climbing, kayaking, and biking, and their focus on outdoor confidence building for young kids is what sets them apart. Learn more and sign up at www.avid4.com or call 1-800-977-9873.
Mile High Gliding, located in Boulder, Colorado, is your opportunity to experience glider flying at its best. Because they are nestled up against the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, the pilots at Mile High Gliding can get you out over the mountains for the adventure of a lifetime. Whether you are in it for the thrill of the aerobatic glider ride or just looking for the peaceful way to take in the spectacular views, Mile High Gliding has the flight package for you. Call them at 303-527-1122 or visit them on the web at milehighgliding.com to book this awesome experience. Don't forget to mention that you heard about them on the Adventure Sports Podcast to save 10%. You reminded me of uh, old Fall River Road up in Rocky Mountain National Park. I live uh, in Boulder County, so I'm just down the hill from, from Rocky Mountain National Park. And that's a road that I haven't been on in at least 15 years, if not more. And looking through your book, it, I realized, no, that's there. That's a, a great road. So it's, I've put it on my short-term bucket list. Like in the next couple of weeks, I've got to get up there and, and ride that road too. Yeah. No, I mean, that was one that a friend rec- that lives in Fort Collins recommended to me. And uh, um, I was actually just up there uh, working on an assignment uh, a couple of weeks ago and I was, uh, was trying to figure out my itinerary and how long that ride would take me and really jonesing to go do it. But uh, I, I didn't have the time to click it off my own bucket list, but it's uh, it, it's certainly still on there, and I, I hope to uh, knock it off soon. It, it Yeah, I mean, and, and it's funny because uh, I, I went pretty deep into the weeds on a lot of this stuff, and like I think the sort of the route that I recommended in the Old Fall River Road is, you know, sort of... Um, coming down the highway uh, where it intersects the ranger station. But uh, in talking with my friend, there's like a series of trails that sort of go up an adjacent mountain pass uh, and called the Le Poudre Pass. It's like an old French trapper uh, right. trail where they, I guess, uh, buried their gunpowder, you know, hundreds of years ago. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like looking at that, it's like, oh, we could cut across this pass. And, you know, like, planning this sort of uh, ridiculous epic adventure. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that was the whole fun of writing the book was just uh, exploring all this stuff. And, um, I mean, my wife can tell you I, uh, I would come, come in from my office every day and uh, just uh, I had, you know, our next uh, dozen vacations all planned out. Yes, yes, I can relate to that. That's the problem with doing this podcast is I talk to people about the amazing things they, they do and, and I'll go in and talk to my wife and say, honey, we've got to go do this. This sounds so awesome. We're going to do it. And she's like, you knock that off. Your bucket list is going to be three lifetimes long. <laughs> Absolutely. Where can people find out more about you? Where can they find out about your book? What are the best places to follow you? Uh, man, I... Uh... I have to admit my website is uh, pretty lame and in need of updating. Uh, maybe that's uh, my brother will listen to the nice things about it, that I said about him in this podcast and uh, help me out with it. He's a graphic designer, so uh, so we're, it's, it's uh, something that's in the works. But uh, my website is iandilly.com, and uh, you can find a sampling of my writing there for a number of different um publications. I, I think the best place to see what I've written lately is uh, just via Twitter. I post uh, a lot of my stories on Twitter at, uh, at Ian Dilly. Um, and then, you know, I'm in Bicycling Magazine regularly. Probably the favorite story that I've ever written was in the July issue of Bicycling Magazine. It was the cover story and it was uh, about this guy that uh is a sort of a crazy bicycle adventurer that uh you know spends works six months out of out of the year on a fishing boat and the other six months he just travels around the country on these uh vintage mountain bikes you know doing tours you know through the wilderness and um and so uh that would be a good story to check out if anybody wants to sort of sample any of my writing. It's a story for a bicycling magazine called uh, Ultra Romance. 
Ultra Romance. Very cool. I think I want to go find it just to find this guy to interview him. He sounds like a good interview as well. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would recommend that, yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Okay, so the website is iandilly.com, and that's I-A-N-D-I-L-L-E.com, and then you're at Ian Dilly on Twitter. Correct. So you can direct people that way. Correct. This is not your only book. You wrote another book. Yeah. Um, so my first book was called The Price of Gold. And uh, I co-authored it with an Olympic gold medalist named Marty Notstein. Um, he was an Olympic track cyclist, and the um, I guess the discipline, the track cycling discipline that he competed in was called match sprinting. And uh, most, it's a pretty niche thing, but most people that I've talked to have, you know, they're like, "Oh, I've seen that on TV." So it's the uh, it's the track cycling event where um, you see these big, beefy, muscular guys that look like football linebackers, um, you know, sort of inching around the track uh, side by side. It's a it's a one on one sport, so it's a it's a match. It's one person against another, and they do three laps. And <clears throat> the uh, the first two laps, they it's all sort of about jockeying for position and uh, psyching out the other rider, and then. The last lap, they, they race full out and they sprint for the line. And, um, and so he was, uh, he won the silver medal in this event in, uh, at the, Marty won the silver medal in this event at the Atlanta Olympics in 96. And he was one of those silver medalists where, um, he viewed that as a, you know, he didn't win the silver medal, he lost the gold medal. And that was something that just really, ate it in um, and he wasn't able to accept and he really devoted the next four years to winning the gold medal at the Sydney Olympics and he poured everything into that and um, you know sort of and uh, not sort of but completely um, um, at the sake of his family and his friends and sort of everything else in his life he just had this real tunnel vision and it's, and he achieved winning the gold medal. Um, but you know, afterwards he sort of had to, uh, make up as a human being for all that he had given up to, to accomplish that. So the book is, uh, it's pretty interesting. I mean, like I said, it's a, it's a niche sport, but I think it's a story that a lot of people can relate to because it's, um, it has a lot of human elements in it about, uh, how he just, had this really one track mindset and in achieving this one goal and, and how that, you know, cost him, um, other things in his life. So, uh, I, when, the when the book project came to me, uh, I was, I was a little bit hesitant to take it on because, uh, my impression of Marty was that he wasn't a very nice guy. And, uh, and I think that was a lot of people's impression, but, uh, I feel like through this book, he really wanted to explain why he sort of came off as a jerk and, and had this, uh, this real macho bluster about himself. And, um, and so that's why the book is called the price of gold. And, um, and yeah, it it was a lot of fun to work on. And, um, you know, the uh, handful of people who've actually read it, uh, I've been told, uh, it really enjoyed it. So, (laughs) <laughs> I, I think it's still available on Amazon and uh yeah if any, if anybody would uh yeah wants to wants to go to read I would I you know I would personally encourage it it was uh I, I was I was happy with how that came out you know being my first book. Well good that's why I wanted to bring it up. It looks like a good story. I mean there he definitely paid a price for his success and I think that there are more than a handful of people in the adventure sports community that can relate to that same story. So this guy got an opportunity to get his story told and explained and and through the book probably sets the record straight. Yeah. Um yeah, you know and uh it, we, we worked on that a lot and um and I think he wanted to tell his story in, in a way that was, uh, you know, sort of an explanation. And, um, and yeah, I, ultimately, I think we were, we, were, we were both pretty happy with it. Right on. All right. 
How about we end the show with a funny story? Is there something that happened in your cycling career that, uh, other than getting thrown into barbed wire, <laughs> although you probably don't want me laughing at it, but I did have to chuckle. I apologize for that. Is there a good funny story? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this. Uh, you know, it's one of those things like uh, when you're sitting around drinking beers, all you have is funny stories. But uh, when you're when you're sort of put on the spot, it's a little bit harder. But um, I uh, I was actually just in Mississippi uh, doing a book tour event, and it. Uh, brought up to mind this uh, bike race I did in Mississippi when I was in my 20s, in the early 20s, and uh, racing on a pretty high-level amateur team. And it was in a town called Tupelo, Mississippi, which is actually where Elvis Presley was born. Uh, that's what this town is famous for. And it was a pretty high-level amateur bike race, a pretty decent purse, and... Um, it was this course through uh, this really nice part of town, these uh, sort of, you know, the mansions of Tupelo and big, nice trees, you know, fully shaded. And um, and <clears throat> we started the race, and I had a teammate on my team who was, uh, he was sort of this old crotchety guy. I think he was, like, in his 50s, but he was really, still really strong. His name was Kent Bostick, and he was a, a former Olympian, and um, the two of us ended off the front of the pack together. We'd broken away, and we were just, uh, you know, sort of time-trialing off the front of the pack together. Um, and we were racing through this neighborhood, and uh, it was a circuit that we'd done a number of times, but uh, somehow we, like, managed to take a wrong turn. <clears throat> and uh, we were, like, out of sight of the, of the pack that was chasing us, so, um, you know, we didn't really know where we were and, you know, the pack was still chasing us because, uh, they thought we were still on course, like well ahead of them. And so once we realized we were off course, we sort of like stopped going so hard and we're sort of just riding around trying to get our bearings, figuring out where we were. And I was pretty young at the time and I thought our race was over. I was like, this is it. Like you don't go off course and then, you know, continue the race and, so we're sort of riding around, and then, like, a couple streets over, we see the the pack ride by. And so we, we had an idea of where the course was. So we ride back over to where we saw the pack go, and and, Ken, and Kent's like, hey, hey, get behind this tree here. We'll, we'll hide, and we'll wait till we come by, they come by again, and then we'll jump on the back. <laughs> so, so there we are, like, hiding behind this tree. And, uh, bikes and all yeah. <laughs> and we wait for them to come by again and we jump out and we race on and we you know sprint onto the back of the field and and meanwhile they're still racing all out like trying to catch us and uh and you know our teammates are like working hard like chasing down attacks like trying to keep the pack from uh from bringing us back and and so we we get onto the back and our teammates turn around and they're like, "What are you guys doing here? We thought you were off the front." And uh, we're like, "Yeah, about that. Uh, we'll we'll tell you later." Um, so uh, so I guess that was a, a pretty eye-opening uh, experience for me. I mean, that was uh, probably uh, the only time that I would admit to having uh, cheated in a bike race, and uh, and it. It, you know, it really took a seasoned veteran to, uh, to, to, to show me how to do it correctly. So it was, uh, it, it was pretty funny and it's, uh, yeah, something that, that really sticks out to me as, as one of the, uh, more memorable, uh, points in my, uh, bike racing time. Uh, that's funny. That's a good one. <laughs> we don't, we don't always have to take life so seriously. Right. <laughs> All right, Ian. I appreciate your time that you've given me for the interview. I would recommend people go check out the book. Like I said, this is not just for cyclists in my eyes. Um, even if you're just sitting on the couch and that's all you want to do, then flip through this and live vicariously through the pages of this book. It really is a neat book. Yeah, Thanks so much for having me on the show, Travis. All right. Take care. Bye. Would you like to be a guest on an upcoming show? Just go to adventuresportspodcast.com and click contact us.
Thank mm-hmm. you.